0: Good morning, I'm so excited to bring God's word to you this morning, and if you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16, <laughs> Exodus chapter 16 this morning. So as we continue our series through the book of Exodus, we've got to ask ourselves this question and really looking at the whole Pentateuch as a whole, but what is the goal, the end goal, of Israel's journey to the promised land? Is it merely for God to set his people free from slavery and that's it? Is it just provision for the people of Israel? Does he just want Israel to live a nice life, not making bricks anymore? What's the purpose? What is the goal? You see, the goal of Israel's journey in Exodus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. You see, God made a promise to him. And I want to read a little bit of what God says at the end of his covenant with Abraham because it explains why Israel is in the wilderness of sin in in their sojourning. In Genesis 15, it says this, starting in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward it shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go back to your fathers in peace You shall be buried in a good old age and they, the people we're talking about in our text today, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice here, even that language, no for certain. And why was it certain? Well, part of the Abrahamic covenant, it was only conditioned upon God, not upon God and Abraham. Abraham was put to sleep, as you might remember. Remember? And so the fulfillment of the covenant only relied upon one party, and that is God. God alone. And so he tells them, well, God is going to keep his word no matter what. So you can know for certain what's going to happen. They're going to go to Egypt, they're going to be slaves, but I'm going to bring them out. And so we find ourselves in this text today, a part of that journey. So the big question to put before you is this does God keep his promises? Does God keep his promises? God made a promise in Genesis Genesis 15 to Abraham, and he kept it. This Exodus journey proves that God is keeping his promises to Abraham. So if you agree that God keeps his promises, then you might respond, well, of course, I'd answer that question with a yes and amen. I love God. I've trusted in Christ. He's been so faithful to me, I could never doubt God. I trust in him alone. But then if you, like me, have a sinful flesh. You might grumble about what's happening in your life, what's happening in your home or at your work, and you don't bring it to the Lord in prayer. You don't go to God with your need, you grumble. And recognizing what you're going through, listen, it's no surprise to God. God is not shocked, like, oh no, you're going through this? I had no idea. (laughs) God's sovereign. He sees and knows all things. That's what omniscience means. He knows everything. Omnipresent, he's everywhere present. He knows a word before it comes to your mind or comes off your tongue. God is not surprised by our trials. So the greatest danger for you is that you lose sight of who God is as the promise-keeping or covenant-keeping God. Maybe today you've come into the service and you're not a believer in Christ. You're a skeptic or you're an objector doubting God's word. And maybe you come in here reluctantly today. Maybe you don't know God or you're not sure if God keeps his promises. You might be a believer who's just doubting. Well, I hope the narrative of today's text and the gospel will help you see that you can turn to the Lord and trust in him. That if you're an unbeliever, you can turn from your false idols and false gods, and turn to the true living God, if you're a believer, to renew your love for God and your trust in him. So, it's essential here to ask, to remember, this question as we go throughout, does God keep his promises? As we think about our text today, and the truthfulness of the gospel, I think of this quote from C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if true, is of utmost importance. If false, of no importance. The one thing it can't be is mildly important. So today, I hope you'll consider the Lord if you're an unbeliever. I hope you'll consider the truth of who God is today. So as we think about this glorious inheritance that awaits us as believers in heaven, we find ourselves on a journey spiritually that looks much like what the journey of Israel was on in Exodus. And we could be and act much like the people of Israel did on their way. We could become grumblers. We will see in this text the centrality of the sovereign sovereign rule of Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name for God, meaning I am who I am, or I will be whom I will be. In some translation, it probably shows up the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D. That's the personal name for God. The Lord, our God, he is the one over all our circumstances. So as we think of the context of Exodus as a whole... The centrality of Mount Sinai is key. Now, if you've never heard of Mount Sinai or know what it is, that's where God gives the law. We're going to see that in the coming weeks and months as we move our way toward that text. All these narratives and events in the journey toward the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is pointing toward Sinai, which is the next covenant God makes with his people. Stephen Dempster says in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, it is Sinai, not Egypt. That is the largest roadblock to Canaan. It was really easy for God to take care of the Egyptians. It wasn't hard for him. There's nothing too hard for God. The biggest roadblock for the people to get to Israel is God himself and how they approach him at Mount Sinai. And this is because at Sinai, the law is given and the people rebel and worship the golden calf, revealing the true state of their heart. We'll get there eventually. I'll say that for down the road. But Exodus shows that Sinai is central. Uh, there's a lot of repetition in the text that we'll see as we go forward as well that a lot of murmuring and complaining last week was about their grumbling. Well, guess what? It's to be continued grumbling again this week more grumbling. The people of Israel are continuing down this path, and it's a sad path. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus and read the text in full starting in verse 1 in chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. See, Sinai in focus. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent and the people of Israel did so they gathered some more some less but when they measured it with an omer whoever gathered much had nothing left over whoever gathered little had no lack each of them gathered as much as he could eat and Moses said to them let no one leave any of it over till the morning but they did not listen to Moses some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Today, if we're to summarize the main idea and a point, it's this. We must see God's glorious grace in his provision for his stubborn people. We must see God's glorious grace in his provision for his stubborn people so that we might be instructed in righteousness so that we might be instructed in righteousness. I'll read that as a whole one more time in case you're a note taker. We must see God's glorious grace in his provision for his stubborn people so that we might be instructed in righteousness. So the first reason we must see God's glorious grace in his provision is because this, when we grumble, God hears it. When we grumble, God hears it. As we see in the beginning of this text, this takes place in the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai. If you look back at Exodus 15, 27, it describes what Elam's like. Elam is a place where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. It was a bit of an oasis in this wilderness for them. And then the text goes on to say that it's the 15th day of the second month. In other words, in recording this timeline, it's been one month since the events uh, that took place in Egypt, of the plagues and the Passover. It's been one month of them living off of whatever food they brought out of there, now to this point of hunger in the wilderness of sin. And so because because it's been that now, um, they're starting to get hungry. And it's not just a few, it's the collective. It's the group of people as a whole, as the text points out. Look at verse two, it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And here we have Moses telling us the setting and the problem with the people. All are grumbling, and it's specifically against the leadership, against Moses and Aaron. Now, verse 3 tells us exactly what they're grumbling about. By by quoting them here, you, you heard it when we read it. They wanted the Lord to kill them in the land of Egypt. That's what they're saying. If we could just go back, essentially, and when we look at that verse, they're saying, why go through all the trouble that we just have to die Uh, It would have been so much easier to just have died in Egypt. If we're going to die here, it would have been way easier to die back there. We could have gotten it all over with instead of wasting a whole month walking around slowly dying from starvation. We could at least died with full bellies from the meat pots of Egypt. That's what they're thinking. They're looking at this as a complicated mess, out of control. They're seeing it as absurd to end up dying this way. And they're arguing that it would have been better to experience the plagues of Egypt, or the crushing judgment of the waters of the Red Sea falling upon them, instead of going through this hunger. You know, sometimes when we're hungry, we're not thinking clearly. Amen? (laughs) And we look at the people of Israel here, they're hungry, and they seem to have forgotten the promises of God. They've forgotten the promises of God. It seems that they convinced themselves of this whole good old days mentality. Oh, back in those good old days when I could eat all that good Egyptian meat. If we could only get back to those days, right, things would be right again. This feeling of nostalgia and emotion They're driven by their feelings, by their passions, as the scriptures would teach in the New Testament. They've forgotten how bad it was as slaves. You see, they think, sadly, and they're blaming Moses and Aaron, but by blaming Moses and Aaron, they're actually blaming God. And this is revealed later in the text. We'll get there. It's very similar to when Adam was in the Garden of Eden. And he gets caught after he sinned. And he, sa- and he says to the Lord, well, it's the woman you gave me. So what's he doing? He- he's blaming the woman, but he's really blaming God. Because he says, you gave her to me and we-, we sinned. So that's what the people of Israel are doing again. They're blaming Moses and Aaron, but they're really blaming God. They're not trusting him. And how often we might find ourselves grumbling and complaining for the good old days, for things to be better or easier like they used to be, when, when that is not God's will for us right now in the moment. Where you're at in your life is exactly God's will for you right now. God might be testing us and trying us, trying to teach us something in the moment. He's testing the people of Israel here. And what does he do? He uses our circumstances. He uses our suffering sometimes even our own sin in our lives. And we might not always respond by faith, but we must trust him because he's our provider. He's our provider. He keeps his promises. And to grumble against God is to say to him, God, I know better than you do. I would do a better job at being God than you would. That's what grumbling is saying to God. It's the height of arrogance. So immediately following their complaint, God speaks to Moses here, which which is really amazing, right? They're grumbling that they're not being provided for. And the very next verse, God provides, God responds, God hears. You might remember the very beginning of Exodus when the people were groaning and crying out to the Lord in Exodus two, in the very end, they're groaning because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Exodus two, in the middle of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and the text says, and God heard. They're groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Four things, God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. And that's the same God in our passage today. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we see they don't think God cares and God shows his care. Right there in verse four and five, Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, why, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So we see that Yahweh announces his provision to rain bread from heaven. Then he gives clear instructions to gather every day. And through this act, the same God who delivered them from Egypt is the same God who will daily provide for their needs. God personally meets the need they have on a daily basis and gives a law to remind them of this daily provision. As one commentator said, God was teaching them a concept that he was their ultimate provider. The one who from heaven gave them not necessarily what they expected, but what they really needed. Thus his satisfying them with the bread of heaven becomes a theme of scripture that not only refers to the manner described in this account, but to the ultimate provision of eternal sustenance in Christ himself, the bread from heaven. You see, this is a reminder to us as believers that we need the gospel daily. We need to proclaim the truths of the gospel to ourselves. I know I need to. Life is full of difficult circumstances and trials, so we must look to the Lord for satisfaction. Psalm 107.9 says, you satisfy the longing soul and the hungry soul you fill with good things. So, beloved, go to the Lord in his word and rest in him. So why does God give them this instruction as specific as he does in this text to gather daily? What said? He said that I may test them. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God desires to use this gift as a test, to test the people's willingness to obey him. Are they going to listen? He's showing them through this whether the people will be inclined to obey the law that he's going to hand down to Sinai. So once again, this is pointing to the future. This is pointing to what he's about to do. And the big question is this, do you, Israel, want to be God's covenant people? Do you want to enter into covenant with me? This is the picture here. So, in a a little way, this test is like a pop quiz for the people of God. Here here you go. I haven't given the Sabbath command yet, the fourth commandment. That's going to happen at Sinai. But here's a little quiz. Do you want to be my people? Do you want to enter into covenant with me? And what does he do? In this test, he's revealing the true states of their heart. Almost like as a warning. Before they get there, and before they worship the golden calf, and don't trust in him for provision. Because remember, they look at the calf and they say, this is the God who got you out of Egypt giving the credit to someone it's not due, the glory to someone it's not due. The provision and the glory for that provision belongs to the Lord God alone. So this covenant at Sinai is different from the covenant God made with the patriarchs. The Sinai covenant, both parties are involved together in making this covenant, whereas God only had specific conditions for himself for the Abrahamic covenant. The conditions for the people of God in the Sinai covenant boil down to this real simple. Okay. Obedience leads to blessing and fullness of life. Disobedience to curse and death. It's that simple. Read the end of Deuteronomy. You'll see it laid out in a list of blessing and a list of curses. That is a, a short summary of the covenant. As, as Stephen Dempster goes on to explain, he says, the purpose of this covenant as Sinai is that an obedient Israel may bring God's creation blessing to the world if Israel obeys the divine commandments, it will become God's treasured possession among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So part of God's covenant law with his people here is meant by observing the Sabbath. He explains that in verse five, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily, foreshadowing the fourth commandment. As one commentator succinctly says when he observes, he says this, this rule looks both forward and backward in testing Israel's faith in God's provision. How does it look backward, you might ask? He goes on to say, it looks backward to the creation account, which specifies that God himself rested on the seventh day. It looks forward to the revelation of the fourth commandment as well, end quote. Essentially, they're learning to obey in advance. He's providing for them guidance and how to practice it here. Then immediately following this command, what do we see next? Look at the text. Moses and Aaron immediately communicate the word of God uh, to the whole congregation. Look at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So one major thing to point out here is that Moses and Aaron were prophesying. They were communicating the supremacy of Yahweh over all the false gods in the polytheistic culture that the Israelites had found themselves in when they were in Egypt. In other words, a way to maybe say this differently, tonight you shall know that it was the Lord Yahweh who brought you out from the realm of the false gods who are not gods. They didn't provide for you like I have. I'm going to provide for you. That's what God is saying in this powerful picture with with providing the meat for them. So this event of provision reminds them of who their God is, just like the plagues reminded them of who their God is versus the Egyptian gods. He provided for them and sustained them for 400 years. He protected them through each plague. He provided them with silver and gold when they plundered the Egyptians without lifting a sword. He provided escape through the Red Sea. He provided drinking water at Mara, And now he will provide food. God provides for his people. Now, I know Lewis loves to do this, so I'm going to do it too, okay? I'm going to call time out, okay? Um, Notice the evening and morning pattern in the text. The evening and morning pattern in the text. Evening is mentioned first, then morning. That might sound really familiar to you if you know your Bible. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in the creation account, it was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. Very similar pattern. That's not an accident. The Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. And it seems that the Lord's communicating here that their gathering of manna isn't something taking place over thousands of years, maybe. Uh, The same words for evening and morning and for day are the same used in Genesis 1. In other words, day means day, not thousands of years. So yes, I just said young earth creationism is biblical. Uh, So scripture is consistent. So time out over, side note, okay. But scripture is consistent, evening and morning, the first day. So in verse seven, when speaking of morning, they say, the people shall see the glory of the Lord. Notice right away, this focus on the glory of the Lord. This is the first time this phrase is used in the Hebrew Bible. And God's glory is seen in his provision. God will miraculously provide in rich abundance for his people. So in other words, y'all, this isn't abstract for them. It's not abstract for the people of God. Like, oh, I should know that God provides for me. No, they're going to see the glory of the Lord. It's visible to them with their own two eyes. Like they saw the plagues, like they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They will see the provision of the Lord. So in their grumbling, in their bad perspective, they're going to see this provision. Now, in our own lives, I believe the cure for a bad perspective on the Lord and your circumstances is to choose to honor God or give thanks to him regardless of what you're going through. That's the right response. Romans 1 demonstrates this as it describes those who are in rebellion against God. It says this, refusing to honor God or give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So when we fail to Rightly honor God. What does it do to us? It makes us foolish. It makes us foolish. And the cure for getting our perspective back on track is to go directly to the cross. It's to go directly to the Lord and honor Him and give thanks to Him. And that's going to shape us out of that foolish thinking when we're hungry and when we're grumbling and when we're complaining. And don't miss this as well. Look look, look, at, look back at the text. Do you see this correction here that's offered immediately by Moses and Aaron? Look at the text in verse seven. He says. He's pointing out this foolish thinking that led them to blame Moses and Aaron. Verse 7, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. He points it out right here. He corrects them. It's not Moses and Aaron that's your problem. You're saying it's the Lord who's your problem. That's what you're actually saying. Moses didn't hear them wrong. He heard them all right. But Moses is correcting this faulty thinking. That's the purpose that God has put the... The pastors and church leaders to help guide and shepherd the people of God. Moses is functioning as a shepherd here, shepherding his people as the Lord God would have him to do. But then he explains, for what are we that you grumble against us? It reminds you when Peter in 1 Peter 5 says that we're just under shepherds, but we're serving the chief shepherd. We're going to get it wrong sometimes, but look to the Lord and trust in him as the chief shepherd. Don't grumble against us, look to the Lord. Now in verse eight, Moses in many ways repeats what he said in verse seven. Notice he says in verse eight, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So he is verse seven declared they would know God brought them out of Egypt. And verse eight demonstrates how in the evening God is going to give it to them. He's reiterating this. Verse 7 says they will see the glory of, Lord, of the Lord, and verse 8 says, explains that in the morning they're going to eat the bread to the full. He's been building this up. He's breaking it down for them. So in short, three things here. They're going to eat this meat and bread because one, God graciously provides it for them. God graciously provides it for them. Number two, God has heard their grumbling, and number three, God has decided to test them. Number one, God graciously provides it for them. Number two, God has heard their grumbling. And number three, God has decided to test them. So we are reminded in this section that the prophets of God, while revered men for their position and their role in bringing God's revelation to his people, they are mere instruments in the hand of the Lord. The source of the word is Christ the Lord. He's the living word. So when someone disregards the prophets or the apostles, they are disregarding God. Paul does this in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, when he's trying to help people understand the role of sanctification and the role of how they should handle their bodies. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or a big word meaning that you be set apart and holy for his purposes. Your sanctification, this is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then he goes on and talks about controlling your body. But listen to what he says in the very end. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So beloved, the danger for you today is that you might You think you might be here on Sunday morning hearing the word of God proclaimed to you, going through the weekly routine or occasional visit to church, but you disregard the word of the Lord. You think you might be disregarding what Pastor Lewis has said or what Pastor Ryan has said or what Pastor Travis has said or what your Sunday school teacher has said. You think you might be just disregarding them at times, but if we're holding forth the word of God to you, and you're not taking heed to what it says, you may be found to oppose God. And scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lewis, Ryan, and I, we're definitely not prophets or apostles. We can get it wrong, but we're shepherds, and we're holding forth the word for you, unfolding the truth of the text to you to know God, be known by him, and to go out from this place and make him known to all. So, we desire you to know the scriptures, to dive in for yourself, and to take hold of it and grow in your understanding of the text, that you might be transformed. And listen, you cannot grow unless you're in the Word, unless you draw near to God through the living and active Word. But if you come into the sanctuary with a heart set on grumbling against God, beloved, be careful. Be careful. Which brings us to our next point in Exodus 16. Notice now, after the grumbling of God's people, Moses and Aaron now invite them. Hey, come and meet with God. Let's meet with God about it. Look at the text, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. You see, Moses uses Aaron again as a spokesperson and tells him to say to everyone to come near before the Lord. And this invitation uh, to all, it communicates that all were partaking of the grumbling and complaining, not a select few. And this invitation to come near before the Lord, as one commentator says, it essentially means this. To, what does that mean to gather before the Lord? It's to gather to whatever place or object represents Yahweh's presence among them. And at this point in their history, it's the pillar of cloud. Remember, they were led by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Well, In this scene, if we're to imagine ourselves in the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai, what's leading them to Sinai? The pillar of cloud. And so we got to go there in our minds and our imagination to say, that's where the presence of the Lord was for the people of God. You know what the presence of God is for us today? The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And His word here. It's a powerful, powerful truth for us today. So as we look at this text... They're drawing near to the pillar of cloud because, as Aaron makes known to them, he has heard your grumbling. God is paying close attention to his people, so he's going to give his response. And this is not just a feast for Israel. Hey, come and eat some manna and quail. God is testing them. He's heard their murmurings. And now he's saying, let's come and talk about it. He wants to see you. He's scheduled an appointment. So the second reason that we must see God's glorious grace and his provision as we see from verse nine and going into verse 10 is, that, is this, is that God desires for his people to know him. God desires for his people to know him. Yes, we must see God's glorious grace and his provision because when we grumble, God hears, but also God desires for his people to know him. Look down at verse 10 with me. It says, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. We don't know if this is like behind them, but it's not the direction they're facing with Aaron at least. And so they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, the pillar of cloud that led them. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So we see here the glory of the Lord appearing. God is present in this moment. And really, it's, it's a marvelous thing, because this is the first time God speaks from the pillar of cloud before the people. He has communicated that his presence was in the cloud by day and fire by night, but now God is speaking from the cloud. God gives a command as to what Moses is to say regarding the meat and bread to demonstrate to them that they then shall know that I am the Lord your God. God desires for his people to know him. In verse 13 to 15, we see this response of the people of God to this miraculous provision. Look at verse 13 and 15. In the evening, quail came up. It covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? But they did not know what it was. So this text is essential, essentially just giving us an account of what went down here. When we see the language here, it's evident that a miraculous event is taking place. For example, it says the quail covered the camp. It's covered the camp. Just so imagine waking, waking up in the morning, coming out, stretching from the tent, and like, whoa, okay, you know, there's, there's a lot of quail out here. It's covered the entire camp. It's all over my tent. It's, all, it's, it's filled those pots and those pots and those pots. It's everywhere. Quail is everywhere. God has abundantly provided. That's the picture here. God has abundantly provided. You can't look anywhere in the camp and not find quail. You have plenty. That's the, really the picture here. So, in other words, I have a lot more than the pots of Egypt. I have a quail for you, I'm providing for you. Now, when it came to the morning dew and the manna was found after the dew was gone, the people of God didn't know what to think of it. In another passage of scripture, it calls uh, manna angel food because of what's coming from above, it's coming from heaven. And literally they said, what is it? And that's actually in the Hebrew, literally its name. What is man, and then is it is a. So it's manna, what is it? So they're looking at it and they're calling it, what is it? That's the actual name it has. What is it? And so manna is given to them and, and there's no question about it here, a miracle took place. And God provided for the people and they were stunned by what it was, it was a miracle, it was beautiful. So in this text, we see that God's promises are being fulfilled in spite of their grumbling and sin. That God, on the basis of his promise with Abraham, provides for them. It's not because they grumbled and, you know, we know that's like, right? You, You have a child and sometimes they might grumble and the temptation, if you wanted the grumbling just to stop, right? You give them exactly what they want, right? But what happens? You don't teach them to not grumble, And and then they learn, oh, if I grumble, I can get exactly what I want, right? If I whine and fuss, I'll get exactly what I want. That's not what's happening here. God's not giving in to these, like, demands of the people of Israel. God's being faithful to his covenant with Abraham, and he hears their grumbling, and he's definitely not proud of it. He's definitely using this as a test for them. That's what he's already said. It's a test for them. So we see here now the third reason that we must see God's glorious grace and his provision is because of this. God desires for his people to obey him. So not only does God desire for his people to know him, he desires for his people to obey him, which leads us to the rest of our passage today. In verse 15, Moses continues with his response to their bewilderment. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Moses immediately answers, answers their question with the proclamation that God has gloriously provided for them, even when they did not deserve it one bit. Moses tells them what God commands them, and he lays out the rules for the test. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it. Each one of you, listen to this, and it's repeated in the text, maybe underline this in your text, as much as he can eat. As much as he can eat. We see this again at the end of verse 18 and in verse 21. Three times in the text, as much as he can eat. So God is not letting their bellies be half full and say, well, God, why didn't you provide more? He provides enough for each person as much as they can eat. So when he lays out the rules, he tells them, you shall take each an omer. Now we don't measure an omers today. If you measure an omer, good for you. Um, but an omer essentially is two quarts. So we got four quarts in a gallon, right? So half a gallon of milk. Okay. And so. They're gathering that much per person. Now the text walks through their response to this command. And notice in verse 17, the people of Israel did so and they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack and each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now this text could sound like a miracle is taking place that someone could have had, you know, two and a half quarts we might say and God miraculously made it come out to two. Or someone only gathered 1.5 and then God made them have, you know, two courts. But you've got to read it closely. This isn't what's happening. This text is actually communicating that they were acting carefully to not break God's law in this instance. Verse 18 ends, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Which is what God commanded them to do in verse 16. So, in other words, God's people listen. Good. Well, there's an end there, right? And verse 19, he gives further instructions that are, you know, to what they should do next. Look at the text. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. Oh, here we go. And it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. So these people who were grumbling were not willing to continue to carry out the commands that God gave them. They were disobedient people. The text says morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted, so it wouldn't be around for the day. But if they had it, if they left it in their half gallon, you know, if they left the, some manna left over. Well, what's happening? Are they gathered more than they should have? It would it would breed worms and it would stink. And so, listen, the communication here is that God is going to provide for your daily needs. They don't need to be frantic and worry and collect it all on Sunday for Sunday to Friday right? God is providing for their daily needs, and that's what it's meant to communicate. Because he had provided daily for their needs from the moment they left Egypt to that moment then, for a whole month. Remember, this is the second month, and God was going to continue to provide for them. And listen, think about this. Step back for the context for a moment. They were in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. And God did this every day, except for the Sabbath. Every day. So what's amazing about this scene is that after seeing this miracle after their grumbling in their stubbornness or laziness they don't listen they don't listen It's sad and often we find ourselves there don't we But as we as we take this text and we and we think about what's happening here and who God is God is a provider He is Jehovah Jireh our provider And as we think about God's ultimate provision of eternal sustenance, it comes from Christ alone. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter six. And in John chapter six, we see our text today from the lips of Jesus and how Jesus communicates to the people of Israel who he is. Starting in verse 31 in John chapter six, In verse 31, it says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So our text today. Now what does Jesus do? Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're clearly not listening closely. He was saying a person, not a thing. So they, they, they want the miracles. They want to see the man in the wilderness thing happen again. They want Jesus to do that for them. But what did Jesus say? In one of his I am statements. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So in other words, I'm the one who came down from heaven. It was me. It is me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In Exodus 16, look at verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him. You'd think they knew the people of Israel grumbled and look at him going and grumbling again. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. sent me and I live because of, because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see what Jesus is talking about here is the fact that using this picture of the man in the wilderness, that he is the one that can cause them to live forever, eternal life, believing in him, eternal life. And what does he do at the Lord's supper? He holds the bread up and says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's always to remember that sacrifice. It's, it's not that someone is participating in grace and that the substance of Christ is in the actual elements. It's none of that. It's that Christ is communicating a picture of what's going to happen to his body. in John 6. he's looking forward and pointing forward that the fact that he's going to give his life, he's going to in his flesh, he's going to be crucified, that's gonna provide for their ultimate need of salvation and eternal life. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so maybe today you're in here and you're seeking satisfaction in all these other things. You're seeking satisfaction in the lust of your eyes and whatever you see and wanna chase after, or the lust of your flesh, and whatever you could fill your belly with to make you feel good, but it's never enough. It always runs dry, it always runs empty or maybe the pride of your own life and possessions and thinking great of yourself versus looking to the Lord and humbling yourself before him and his magnificence. If that's you today, I want to plead with you to look to Christ to accept and eat the bread of life, meaning believe in Christ, trust in him alone. He is only the the only one worthy of your worship because he died in your place. He rose again from the grave And this is a picture that's just the most beautiful of all. Nothing compares to the love of Christ. Nothing compares to the provision of God in Christ Jesus. And so my plea to you, if you're here today, is to hear that truth and respond rightly in repentance and faith. To look to Christ and not your own efforts. My works are never enough. They'll never be enough. The scriptures say that my righteousness is as filthy rags. So look to Christ and humble yourself. I think of also as we think of this passage and think about the main idea here that we we must see God's glorious grace and his provision so that we might be instructed in righteousness. I think of First Corinthians chapter ten. And let's turn there in First Corinthians ten and we'll close. In First Corinthians ten, we see this Israel wilderness journey mentioned here in this chapter. And it's given for a reason. It's a warning against idolatry. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for who? For us. Why? That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. For the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We look at this passage and it's a helpful warning to us. We don't want to grumble. The people of God grumbled, but what happened? As they continued and persisted in their grumbling, they were destroyed. In other words, you might say today, I'm a believer in Christ, but if you persist in sin, If you persist in sin, it may be the case that you are not in fact a believer if your conscience is not pricked by being bothered by that sin. Look, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We all have to do an inventory. We all have to check our hearts in line with the scriptures. So beloved, as you come this morning, how have you come? How have you gathered near to the Lord? to hear from Him. Yes, it's not a pillar of cloud, and you didn't wake up with manna on your front lawn this morning, but we have a miracle, the text of Scripture right here. We have the Word of God right here, and it warns us sufficiently to say, don't fail the test, don't go to idolatry, but go to the God who saves. We must humble ourselves before God. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and in, in the Lord is in Moses giving his second sermon to the people of Israel. He says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know why that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. May you live by the word of God today and every day, morning by morning, your sustenance, from the word of God. We don't want to be grumblers. We don't want to be blemished, crooked, twisted children. But we want to be people who do all things, as Paul says in Philippians 2, all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing. We want to be innocent, blameless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, shining as lights, holding forth the word of life to a lost and dying world. So as we think about God's Glorious grace in his provision. We know, one, he, when we grumble, he hears it. Two, God desires for his people to know him. And three, God desires for his people to obey him. Are you obeying him this morning? If we go back to what I mentioned in the beginning about Abraham's covenant, it's impossible for God to break his covenant. It's impossible for God to break his word. He alone made the covenant and put Abraham to sleep. These conditions apply to God alone, and so they should have trusted that God was going to get them to the promised land, knowing that truth. But the thing is, beloved, they didn't love the truth. They loved their bellies. They loved themselves. And so as the narrative will go on and you'll see, they fall in the wilderness. They did not trust His promises. So today, do you want to be part of God's covenant people? It always begins by faith, by faith what we've been covering in, in Sunday School, in Hebrews 11, it's by faith, it always begins there. But if you're an unbeliever this morning, will you trust in Him alone? Will you trust in Christ alone for your sin? Because if you don't repent of your sin, and you walk out this church mo- building this morning, and you, and you go and you die, there's not a second chance after death. You must turn to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. And so if God, by His Spirit, through His Word, is calling you to repentance and faith, I pray that you would see that and you would respond with with joy, but also with brokenness and sorrow that your sin has kept you from Him for so long and that you would accept that gift that God offers to you. It's being proclaimed to you this morning. Will you respond? That's my plea to you today. Remember, no one who ever comes to me will ever be cast out. We just read that in John 6. You can have trust and assurance from the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy you. That's for you, unbeliever. For you, believer, today, are you grumbling over your present circumstance? Lewis joked that he he's last week he's got a PhD in grumbling. Well, I'm working on my PhD in grumbling. I got my master's in grumbling, though. I probably got one too. But you know, we all struggle with grumbling. We all do. But when we grumble, we say to God, I don't trust you. Beloved, today, can we walk out and say, God, I trust you? What, what's that thing right now in your heart that you came into church, you were grumbling about in your own heart? What's that thing? Pinpoint that thing and say, God, you weren't surprised by that. I'm going to look to you today. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fret or be anxious. And that thing might be legitimately a difficult thing. But what does James say to do? Count it all joy. So beloved, will you do that? And will you do that together? Maybe when you're li- when you're in your life groups tonight? Maybe you can go say, hey, what have you been grumbling about lately? Be honest with each other. Build each other up in the faith. Pray with one another, because we want to trust God in his word. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Lord, help us to not lose sight of the fact that you are a covenant-keeping God. Help us to respond rightly to you this morning in your word, that we might see your glory in your word, and that it might shine into our hearts and change us and make us new. We love you, Lord, and we, we don't want to disobey you in this way. We want to know you and obey you and not grumble. Help us to do that, Lord. There's three ways in which you can respond this morning if you're here gathering today. One way in which you can respond is, is we sing this response song and trusting in the Lord. You can respond by responding to the gospel message. I'd be happy to receive you down front if you want to trust in Christ, but you could also turn to a neighbor in the pew next to you. We have so many people here who love Jesus and will be happy to lead you to the foot of the cross that you might become a follower of Christ today. Do not delay. Forgiveness is ready and available for you. Maybe today if you have a specific prayer need or a burden that's on your heart, maybe you're grumbling about something and you want to come forward and receive prayer, I'd be delighted to receive you and pray with you over whatever you might be facing. And lastly, another way in which you might respond today is if you desire to join Woodlawn in membership, we'd be delighted to begin that membership process with you in learning to know the Lord together as the body of Christ. Lord, as we respond to you, help our response to be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.